Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. The scripture today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 18, verse 1 to 15, and chapters 21, 1 through 7. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, As he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day, he looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, My Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that, you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it, and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant, who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is your wife, Sarah? And he said, there in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season and your wife, Sarah, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, Oh, yes, you did laugh. The Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to his son, whom Sarah bore him. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now Sarah said, God has brought laughter for me. Everyone who hears me laugh will laugh with me. And she said, Who would ever have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection.
Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we come to this time of silent reflection, give us ears to hear your voice. Because even as we try to attune to the silence and stillness of this moment, there are still voices that rush at us from outside, external voices that tell us who we should become or that we're not becoming that person fast enough, what we should purchase, where we should go. And it says strive, achieve, look good at all costs. And if you can't look good, at least don't look bad. And we're exhausted. We have that internal voice that speaks to us with criticism or fear, either regretting the past or fearing the future, and the only place we're not is right here, right now. But this is where you are. Help us to see that you're healing our past, providing a way for the future so we can actually be right here, right now, with hope, honesty, resilience, joy. Help us to see in the midst of all our diversity the ways we're different from one another that actually we have far more in common. Each of us needs the same thing. We need you to break through and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so we pray exactly that that's what you would do right now. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we invite you to teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed, that you give us a new vision, a new direction, and send us out to be your very hands and feet wherever we go. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, part of what this passage hinges on is the idea of laughter. You'll notice Sarah laughs twice in this story, and we'll get into that. What's the best laugh you've had recently? And no, it probably wasn't in my welcoming words at the very beginning when I told you about my Halloween costumes. Or maybe it was, I don't know. That's a gift I give freely. Well, the best laugh I had this week occurred on Monday. Right after Joshua had been, the day before, I did not laugh about this, had been stung by a bee right at the top of his head. And what I learned through WebMD and other research pieces, that that swollenness of the bee sting actually migrates down over time. Gravity kind of pulls the fluids down. And so by the time he went to bed, his eye was swollen half shut. That's not the funny part yet. He, couldn't, he could see only halfway through his eye, and he goes, Dad, how do I look? I said, you look handsome, but that looks painful. So we said to him, son, just so you know, in the middle of the night, your eye will probably swell more and close up. And so if you wake up and you can't see anything, don't worry. That's normal. Your vision will come back. Just call out for us in the middle of the night, and we'll be there for you, and we'll take care of you. To which he responded, can I just make a bed in your room on the floor? And we let him do that. So the next morning on Monday... This is the funny part. I got up first and I'm making coffee for Florence and me and Joshua trudges into the kitchen with his eye completely swollen shut, his hair disheveled, he's still in his pajamas and he goes, Dad, is it all better? (laughs) I said, son, it is not all better. It's much worse. To which he goes into the bathroom, shimmies up onto the sink and you just hear him say from the other room, oh, wow. So while he's asking if it's all better, Florence is standing in front of him. He's standing right here, and I'm behind him just going, can you see his eye? And she's fighting back laughter and tears so not to to traumatize the child. Um, We had a great laugh at that, and thankfully he's all better. You probably saw him today if you're here. That's what makes the story funny as well. But a good laugh. 
A good laugh makes the experience complete. A good laugh not only signifies joy, but somehow it actually amplifies the joy. My Uncle Mike, Uncle Mike, if you're watching right now, he has a laugh at the dinner table that goes so loud and so long, you cannot not join in. It's a contagious laughter. So laughter not only points to the joy or the humor of the moment, it actually amplifies it. But there's another kind of laughter. The laughter that we hear in Sarah in the first part of this passage, it's a cynical laughter. It's the laughter that you laugh so you don't cry. Things are getting so bad so that you don't just melt and grind all the way down. You turn to laughter and switch to a different channel, a different emotion, because it has to come out somehow. It's a cynical laughter. It's an I doubt it kind of laughter. It's a cold laughter. We're going through Genesis. Genesis also means the beginnings. It's like a seed pot. It's where everything starts from. And Genesis asks the really big questions. Where is God in the midst of disappointment? How do you navigate a life that is uncertain and confusing at times instead of getting run over by it or becoming apathetic and just checking out or becoming bitter and cynical and cold and more disconnected and hardened to actually go through this life with all its ups and downs and twists and turns more resilient? more hopeful, more buoyant, more connected. And so Abram and Sarah become a case study in what that looks like. And in the story, we see Sarah's cynical laughter, and then we see her transformed laughter, but all of that points toward the son of laughter. Incidentally, when you hear the ancestors of the faith, or the fathers of the faith, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaac means son of laughter. This was the child that was promised to them that they had been waiting for. Remember, Abram and Sarah have been a picture of faith as a journey. We met them a few weeks ago in Genesis chapter 12 when God said, I will be your God, you will be my people, through you all the nations will be blessed. But first, go. Leave your land, your wealth, your family, all of the ways that your society attributes provision, security, and identity, leave that behind and go to the land I will show you. Strong start, really strong start for Abram and Sarah from a faith and trust perspective. Not so good at the second part of that chapter where Abram in a moment of cowardice or self-preservation sells his wife out and hands her over to Pharaoh saying do whatever you will with her, which you know, if this was an 80s movie it would have waves crashing on the shore after that and all of that. He ends up abandoning his own wife into the hands of another man to save his own life cowardice. Two steps forward, one step back. It's not upward and to the right. This God is continually getting in front of them. In Genesis 15, God comes and makes a covenant with them. This is the interesting, awkward um, scene we saw last week where they take the animals and God says, may I, may, you beco- may I become like these animals if I don't keep my end of the bargain, of the covenant, of the promise of the agreement. In other words, God says, I would rather come undone than see you separated from me. In Genesis 16, Abram, who was waiting for this child of promise, can't wait any longer, and coerces one of his servant girls, Hagar, to lie with him. And they have Ishmael. 
And God gets back in front of him and says, you got derailed. I will honor that child and I will honor that woman. I will not leave anybody behind. I will not abandon anybody. And yet that was not the calling. And now in Genesis 17, God renews the covenant with them. And this is where God changes his name from Abram, which means father, to Abraham, which means father of many. As we joked the other week, from daddy to big daddy. But this is a case study in what the life of faith is like. That God does not select Abram because he is extremely holy or because he's extremely qualified. God makes him holy because of his grace. God qualifies him along the way. See, it's a myth that once we have found God, we need no more seek God. If your pattern for Christian life or what we call discipleship, the process of becoming the person God created you to become, is simply what was the date when you gave your life to God it's, it, that is one instrument in the symphony, but it's missing all the other instruments, all the other days and minutes and moments where you see God's faithfulness in your life in the midst of your successes and your failures. So we see Sarah's cynical laughter. She was, I would say, contentu- cont- contemptuously distrustful. This is not a neutral person or a person who's kind of, I don't think so, She hears she will have a son. But let this sink in. This woman is in her 90s at this point. She has heard before that she will have a son. She heard this 24 years before, and it hasn't happened. So as a person, she's waiting for a son. As a woman, she's waiting for a child. As a wife, she's not only doing all of that, but watching her husband go off with somebody else to make that happen. She's not in a good place. This is how real scripture is about life. It's not putting on the rose-colored glasses. It's saying sometimes it's beautiful, sometimes it's broken. And God's in the midst of all of it. So now she's in her 90s. And she has long given up on hope that anything will change. Abraham and Sarah have become accustomed to nothing changing. They've become accustomed to having their hopes stifled. They've become accustomed to being disappointed. And so they've resigned themselves to a closed future. They've accepted hopelessness as normal. And it asks you, where have you accepted hopelessness as normal? Where you've resigned yourself to a closed future. where you're doing disappointment management. You know, set your expectations as low as possible and you'll never be disappointed. Maybe it's an addiction or a traumatic part of your life that continually comes up in your life. Maybe others don't even know about it and you've just decided, I'm just going to hold on to it. But it's eating you away from within. Maybe it's a grudge that you're holding against somebody else because it feels good to hold a grudge. At least you're not as bad as those people and they're wrong and you can scapegoat them and you can feel better, but it's dehumanizing you. Maybe it's where you are in your career and you're just going to resign yourself to the mediocrity that you have because it hurts too bad to hope. This is where Abraham and Sarah are and this is where God meets them. This is where God will meet you as well. It's in the barrenness that is not evidence of God's absence. It's actually the place where God often does God's best work. But it's invisible and imperceptible 
at the moment. They will only see it in hindsight. What that means is it is possible, in fact, it is likely that God is at work in the hopeless parts of your life right now without you even knowing it. So what can you do? You can be open to it. You can be on the lookout for it. Scripture after scripture talks about people looking for God, waiting for God like the watchman waits for the morning. This is a picture of being in the darkness, waiting for the first rays of light to come. But the light does come. But still, Sarah's in the midst of her cynical laughter. In fact, this is a pitiful situation for Sarah. In verse 12, when Sarah laughs, she says, it says, so Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? Now, this is more self-hating and despondent than it actually looks in the English translation. Without putting you to sleep with the Hebrew construction, here's what it actually says or actually means. After I have grown old and am worn out and useless and good for nothing, shall I have pleasure? Old, worn out, useless, good for nothing. This is a person who has turned her disappointment on herself. She has moved beyond guilt, which says you've done something wrong. Guilt can be a helpful thing in life. Okay? You don't want a heater without a thermostat. It'll melt your house down. You don't want a life without a healthy conscience. You will melt your own house down. But shame goes far different. See, guilt is what tells you when you've done something wrong. But shame is the voice that tells you you are something wrong that you are a mistake, that you are a problem. And this is where Sarah is. Beware the voice of shame, and you're going to see what God does with that voice. In fact, it goes on, not only after I am old, worn out, good for nothing, shall I have pleasure. That word pleasure is also a loaded word. This word pleasure might not be what you think. It's not after I'm this old, will I have the pleasure of having a child. I've been present for the birth of many children, my three plus other people as a pastor. And I can tell you one thing is unanimous. It is not pleasurable to give birth to a child. As one female friend said, if you think having a baby is a pleasure, you are a man. (laughs) You do not know what you're talking about. So she's not talking about, am I going to have the pleasure of giving birth? In fact, the Hebrew word here is the word for intimate pleasure. Sexual pleasure. So in other words, what she's saying is, I'm worn out. We're not even being intimate together. I'm all alone here. The closest person in my world is not even close to me. She's saying, my husband hasn't touched me in years, and we're going to have a baby? So there's this self-disdain, and then there's this disdaining the promises of God combined with this loneliness. I want you to see where she is because we all go through periods like this in one way or another. And how does God react? Does God walk away and say, you know what, there's many fish in the sea and I'll just find another one. I'll work through someone else. Does God say, after I've been with you through all this, how dare you question me? And then snuff her out like pinching the top of the flame on a candle and all that's left is a little wispy smoke. Not at all. What does God do? In fact, all the commentators notice in this passage, when God restates Sarah's objection, he combs out all the self-hating terminology. God will not repeat back to Sarah 
all of the terrible things she said about herself. Follow me here. Sarah said, After I've grown old, worn out, and good for nothing, shall I have the pleasure of being united with my husband again? No one wants me. But when, then God comes back and says, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really bear a child now that I'm old? That's not what she said. It was not nearly that nice. He combed out all of the self-hatred from her language. And here's the point. God makes these promises, and we break them. We don't believe. We don't trust. We take matters into our own hands. We wander. And what does God do? Comes and gets in front of us again and again like a parent trying to reassure their wayward child, I really do love you this much. You really can trust me. And God continuously repeats and reassures, even in the face of our anxious disbelief and nervous laughter. And I love the comedic confrontation. God says, why did she laugh? Sarah goes, I didn't laugh. God goes, oh, yes, you did. And it leaves us as a cliffhanger. I love that. It's not harsh, but God will make Sarah deal with her own cynicism that's eating her up. God will not be an enabler who just says, go on with this pattern because it's going to destroy you. God calls it out in love and truth. Maybe that's a model for us in our closest relationships. That's the best stuff of relationships. A good friend or a great parent or a wonderful spouse who sees something and will say, it would actually be easier in the moment for me to say nothing. I'm going to choose peace instead of truth. The harder thing would actually be to say, I see this, I've noticed this, I've observed this, I'm sensing this, I'm curious about this, I'm concerned about this because I love you. Who might be speaking like that into your life right now that you've been muting because you don't want to hear it? Maybe that's a gift from God to you right now. And who in your life can you be that voice to? Again, always with love, always with trust. Not a license to go shove your viewpoint down someone else's throat and become the morality police. But an invitation to be a connected friend, someone who cares for others well. Like a good teacher, God instructs with a powerful question. Verse 14, is anything too wonderful for God? And that Hebrew word wonder arises often throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Psalms in particular. And Sarah's at a point where her life is devoid of wonder. You know, that's one of the gifts of having small children in our home. If you don't have small children in your home, it's one of the gifts that you had on Halloween to see a small child light up when they see the piece of candy or the awesome costume or the great job you did on your front porch or in your window. The wonder in a child's eyes. For some reason, it evaporates as we get older unless we cultivate it. You take a four-year-old to the zoo, their jaw is on the ground by the time they get through the flamingos at the gate. They're, what? Pink? Pink birds? They're taller than me? you kidding me? You take a 14-year-old to the zoo, they're like, oh my gosh, i got to get back. Fortnite's dropping a whole new session right now. You have to work for wonder. 
Sarah's laughter had no wonder. The question is, is it possible to get older, to have more weight and more responsibilities, to have a more sophisticated life where you do have to pay the bills and you do have to navigate all the things you have to do in your job, you do have to navigate your health, but to go through that journey of life and to actually increase your wonder. I think it hinges on the question God asks in verse 14. Is anything too wonderful for God? This is a critical question we all have to answer. It's an overwhelming and shattering question that demands an answer. And how you answer that question will drive all sorts of other direction, behavior, and perspective in your life. Because if you answer yes, there are some things that are too wonderful for God. Then your world is diminished. It's shut down. It's closed. God is no longer God. Benevolent, maybe. Kind-hearted. Meaning well. Concerned, perhaps. But as powerless as we are in the face of cosmic tragedy and uncertainty. But if you answer no, there is nothing too wonderful for God. If you can cultivate that wonder, if you can come back to that trust, you and the world are in God's hands and the possibilities are endless. God's radically free to keep God's promises despite the greatest odds against it. And so this is where we are in the great drama with Abraham and Sarah. It leaves us hanging in chapter 18, verse 15, before we fast forward through chapter 21. Everything doesn't depend on Sarah and Abraham's answer, thankfully. The resolve of God to bring this child of promise into the world does not depend solely or merely on Abraham and Sarah's ability to get it. And this is how Sarah's laughter is transformed. In chapter 21, verse 6, so you notice we jumped from chapter 18 over to chapter 21. So there's this promise on the front end, this cynical, bitter laughter, and then it happened, and then there's this transformed laughter. And what was the difference? What was the catalyst or the changing agent? Verse uh, 6 in chapter 21. Now Sarah said, God has brought laughter for me. God has to do it. God has to go first. God has to reach in. God has to come down. And the good news is God does. God has brought laughter to me. God must bring it. Sarah is now laughing as a recipient of God's grace. The grace of God overcame the impossibility of her situation. And now she has laughter that's filled with wonder and laughter that makes her free. In fact, she goes on and says, Now Sarah said, God has brought laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. You've heard the saying, it's better to have people laugh with you than to have people laugh at you. Can you imagine how many people must have laughed at her throughout her life? The one who for decades was known as the woman who one day would be the mother of great nations, who had no child, 
And she says, God has reached into my life and provided for me and given me grace and broken through and given me laughter. And now people aren't laughing at me. They're laughing with me. But there's also this sense she's kind of laughing at herself, and it's okay. Yeah, I know. It's crazy, right? 90 years old. Who would have thought? Here I am. Staying up all night's really going to be a doozy, but I was up all night anyways because I always had to use the restroom. She's going to start making jokes about herself because of God's grace. I love it when I hear some of you saying, I can't even believe I'm at a church right now. I can't believe I found this church that takes my questions seriously, that understands the heaviness of life that I can actually walk with and have relationships and friendships with. And then I hear you say, I can't believe I'm a Christian right now. I can't believe I'm considering getting baptized. I can't believe, I actually believe Jesus rose from the dead. It's that laughter of God's grace because God broke through in your life. I've sat with people who, when we were talking about being marginalized, have leaned over to me and said, Pastor Matt, I used to be marginalized, and now I'm in the middle. Now I'm in community. And we laugh about that. There's a laughter that's being transformed because God is at work. Now, I realize some of you are hearing this and saying, you know, that's fine. That's good for Sarah. That's good for that person. But God has not brought me laughter. God has not brought me a child. God has not brought me a spouse or a job or that good health prognosis from the doctor that we were hoping for. And I want you to see that my heart breaks with you but God's heart breaks with you as well. It doesn't gloss over that. We don't have time to dig into it, but there are many stories throughout Scripture. One of the most prominent is in the Gospel of Mark chapter 5 where Jesus is approached by this Jewish leader named Jairus who comes to him and says, my daughter's really sick. Can you come and heal her? I heard that you can heal people. And Jesus begins the long journey of walking toward this girl. In the midst of that, he comes upon a woman who had been bleeding of a hemorrhage for 12 years and she stops and tells him everything and he's listening to it. And while he's listening, can you imagine how long this story must have been? And while he's listening to it, news comes back from Jairus' servants, don't trouble the teacher any longer, your daughter's died. Which in that moment, this daughter has an acute illness or injury that's about to lead to death imminently. And Jesus stops and listens to the long story of a woman who's had a chronic illness for 12 years. She could have waited another day. This child could not wait another minute, and the child died. If a doctor was to treat and triage in that order, they would be sued for malpractice. And Jairus in that moment has to see, not only did he not get the thing he asked God for, but she got the thing she asked God for right in front of him. It has to sting even more. And Jesus' compassion goes to you in the midst of your disappointment. In fact, Jesus knows, is the only God that, that any religion or worldview will put forward that says God actually knows what it's like to be disappointed. We have this view of Jesus the night before he gives his life on the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to the Father, saying, Father, if there is any other way to do this, if there's any other way to rescue all of humanity, if there's any other way to bring humans back in contact with us so that we could become family again, let's do it that way. He takes a long look down the deep tunnel toward the cross and says, can we do it some other way? And the Father says, no. This is my calling for you.
I'll give you one more example of the mystery of disappointment and pain. You have to imagine when Jesus was on the cross that his mother Mary, we know she was there because it mentions all of his friends fled and the women stayed behind, the courageous women. There's a whole other story there, but I love that part. You've got to imagine Mary, his mom, is praying, God, please take my son off the cross. And in that moment, the answer is no. And she watched as he died and gave up his life. But what we know this side of the resurrection is in that moment of disappointment and darkness and despair, God was actually working out the, the whole renewal of all the cosmos. So all I could say to you is, if you're in the midst of the cynical laughter of the hopeless part of life, that season where you wish you could fast forward to looking back and saying, God gave me laughter, but you're not there right now, just know that you're in good company. And God is faithful even in the midst of those moments. It's messy, it's difficult, And I think that's part of the reason God gives us a community, to walk together, to bear each other's burdens. We don't need to fix each other. We can simply witness and care for one another as we go. I want to conclude by looking at the son of laughter because what changed everything for Sarah on one level can change everything for us as well on the ultimate level. The birth of the son of promise, the birth of the son of laughter, And centuries later, an angel shows up to another woman, a young woman named Mary, and says to her, you will have a child, you will bear a son. This woman says, how can this be? You know why she was questioning? Because if it was impossible for Sarah to have a child in her old age, How much more impossible for Mary to have a child without even having a husband, without coming in contact, as she said, as she did not know man. And when Mary says, how can this be, the angel responds, for nothing is too wonderful for God. Nothing is impossible with God. Why does Luke point out, Luke the gospel writer point out, the parallel between Isaac's birth and Jesus' birth? Because Jesus is the ultimate son of promise. Jesus is the one to whom this entire story points. Jesus is the ultimate one in whom we hear the laughter of God's grace triumphing over the impossibilities of our situation. The ultimate Isaac who comes not as an answer to 90-year-old infertility, but comes to deal with sin and death itself. Let me tell you what's impossible. That you and I should live forever in the embrace of God. Completely welcomed. Fully forgiven. Brought closer than family to the divine. In the midst of all our failures and struggles and weakness. That God welcomes us as God's own. And yet, that is exactly what happens through Jesus. The ultimate Isaac. The ultimate son of laughter. How could he do such a thing? I'll tell you how. Jesus lived in a world of heavenly laughter. In John chapter 1, we learn that he was one with the Father, that he lived in a world of heavenly laughter, of communion between Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit with joy in the divine dance. A land of laughter. 
heavenly laughter, rejoicing in each other throughout all eternity, delighting in one another. Jesus was living in a world of laughter, but he voluntarily came into this world and became a man of sorrows, weeping. As the scriptures tell us, a man who is well acquainted with grief and on the cross cries out and was forsaken, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus lost the divine laughter, the divine dance, the divine joy, and received mourning and weeping that we deserve so that we could enter into his laughter and joy and welcome. He became one of us so that we might become one with him. He gave up the welcome of the Father so that you might know what it's like to be embraced as family. He moved from ultimate security, power, and authority in the heavenly realms to insecurity and instability so that you might know that God is with you in the chaos of your life and will one day see you through it and renew even that. He took our death so we could have life. He took our sorrow so we could have laughter of grace. And friends, all the money in the world, the best health in the world, a good report from a doctor, no status, no spouse, no child can ever give you that laugh. May we know the laughter of God's grace. That God always gets the last laugh as God moves toward you and me in our lives and then sends us out with that sort of tenor and tone toward other people. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we listen to this scripture and consider what it means for our own lives, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear your voice. For those places where we've become cynical or bitter, hopeless, Help us to trust that you're at work even in those places. Enable us to be a people who can say, it is God who gives me laughter because God's with me, even in the brokenness of this world. Help us to see how you've ultimately done that in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, will you transform us to become agents of that very renewal. As we enter this time of reflection and prepare to come to this table, we pray that you would empower us, Lord, to be people of laughter in a world full of sorrow. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.